Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. One of the things I like most about Jesus Christ is how he just makes stories up. Now, maybe this isn't that amazing to you, but as a religious professional, I just think it's kind of amazing that when God came to us as one of us, Jesus didn't stand up and say, now I've put together a mighty fine lecture for you today. Or he said, you know, I've written a wonderful paper, and if y'all could just read it, I will tell you exactly who God is. He never created a systematic theology. In fact, all he did was say, hey, you heard the one about, and he just makes up stories. And maybe it's just the, you know, the, the kid that grew up in the kind of evangelical space that just kind of loves that. But I just kind of love the idea that when God came to be with us, God just made up stories to tell us about who God is. Now, the thing about these stories, we often call them parables, is that they lose their punch when we try and take them too much on the nose. Or if we try to take them too literally, or like in today's one, we try to take it too metaphysically. Instead of letting the full locutionary force of the narrative do its work on us. I heard preacher Samantha Beach Kiley liken parables to Pixar films. These stories that take something in our zeitgeist, like monsters under the bed. And you create a story around that idea But if you walk away thinking that the whole point of that film was really to try to tell you something about how monsters actually work, you've missed the point. It's using that 
idea, that story, that fanciful idea that we all kind of are aware of and uses it to say something specific and profound about our own fears. Well, so it is with Jesus Christ. Whether it's a gardener or a mustard seed or a shepherd with a hundred sheep and one goes missing or a woman with 10 coins or a rich man who praises his dishonest manager for writing off people's debts. Or in today's story, Jesus's primary way of helping us imagine God's dream for this world is by saying once upon a time. And in so doing, he confronts, subverts, and reworks our expectations about who God is and what it is that God wants out of us. So I encourage you, don't get unhelpfully bogged down in the details of this story as if it's like some actual glimpse into the afterlife. Um, again, we're, we're so clinical when we read the Bible sometimes. It's like, you know, I've said it before. It's like we expect the doves to just fly out every time we read and the light to descend and oh, when we read the Bible. But like, sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's just weird and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's, you know, grim. So just let the story be. It's a made-up story and keep it focused on what Jesus Christ might actually be saying to us. Evidently, to God, people like us need stories like this. I mean, right? We live in a world where the poor are nothing more than political pawns who can just be thrown on a plane and sent to God knows where simply so we can make good headlines. Now, I know you though. You're an enlightened Christian. You've come down here at an inconvenient hour on a Sunday morning to a community like this. And so I know you think of yourself as one of those Christians that gets it. And for the most part, you've sworn off all the big dumb ideas that get peddled as Christianity in this country. Be careful. Jesus Christ loves to subvert people like you. I know it's easy to look down your nose at something called the prosperity gospel as some self-obvious farce, but in love. In the words of Bishop Willimon, don't lie to me. Uh, we all kind of believe in the prosperity gospel a little bit, don't we? Or we all at least want to believe in it a little bit. Now, come on, get real. Who among us has not received a little extra cash or a room upgrade or a deep discount and thought, well, that was right on time. Thank you for the blessing. Okay, so it's not just me. But see, that's the challenge. It's those little bitty ideas like... The person who has a lot is unquestionably blessed and the persons who don't have much are unquestionably cursed. That if you water them the right way, in a weird kind of social and religious way, it can really grow up to be this very problematic and dangerous plant for your soul. Today, Jesus tells a story that exemplifies what he has said elsewhere. The last shall be first. The first shall be last when God thinks about the way this world works. And I'm not so sure that this story is actually like a takedown of the rich man. I think it's actually much more about really lifting up and vindicating Lazarus. 
Now, if you heard it as a story, as a judgment on the rich man, that might just tell you who you identify with in the story. If you are familiar with Jesus' parables, you might recognize how this one varies. It is the only story Jesus ever told that he made up where he gave one of his fictional characters a name. Lazarus. Do you know what Lazarus means? It means the one who God helps. The one who God helps. I just love that about our Lord. In a world where the chasm between the haves and the have-nots is often bolstered by the names of the haves, Jesus leaves the rich man without a name. Just another rich man. But the have-not is the only one of Jesus' characters that gets a name. This is the one that God helps. Although, you might be thinking to yourself, <laughs> some God, some help. I mean, how come this God couldn't get a little bit of help in the here and now? You know, like today, before he died. Lots of help, God. Samuel says that there are basically two ways of thinking about God's relationship with us. Here's the first. It's a relationship based on the word for, F-O-R. And the other is a relationship that is based on being with one another. We want God to do something for us. Get a job for us. Make a move for us. Remove an opponent for us. Make life a little easier for me. What else are you good for? But what we discover in Jesus Christ is actually something a little more different and frankly more subtle and more delicate. And if you're willing to, perhaps even more beautiful. That is, we discover a God who is with us, has always been with us, and will forever be with us. See, the rich man only knew how to relate to Lazarus in a way if Lazarus could do something for him. But God was with Lazarus every day. And we have to learn how to be with one another, my dear sisters, brothers, and siblings. And I actually do think that people like us have to relearn how to be with one another. We forget it. And we turn our relationships into relationships of what can you do for me? God was with Lazarus every day. And if we can learn how to be with one another without collapsing our relationships into what can you do for me, we might discover how to really live. Because it is just ultimately a sad way of relating to one another, isn't it? What can I do for you? knowing that I'll keep score and you'll keep score and one day you'll do something back for me. I mean, isn't this why some of us absolutely hate it when someone gives us a gift? Like, you ever just been given something for free from somebody and you're like, oh, darn. Because um, <laughs> what do you instantly want to do? You want to redress the balance, right? Hey, I'm not going to be in hawk to you, buddy. Um, uh, 
okay, uh, I can fix this. <laughs> That's probably why a lot of us actually hate God. I mean, if you really think about it, how dare God just give us life? How dare God just call us into being? I wasn't asked about that. I was just given life. How dare God save us in Jesus Christ? We know there's nothing we can do to redress the gift that God has given us by bestowing life to us. Ethicist Stanley Howross writes, to know how to be with the poor in such a manner that the gifts the poor receive do not make impossible a friendship between giver and recipient is the goal. For friendship is the heart of the matter. If we remember that charity first and foremost is the name for how God has befriended us. You see how that works? God has given life to us for no other reason than God loves you. And if you've heard that your whole life and you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, God loves me, thank you. Um, put it a different way. God not only loves you, God actually likes you and wants to be with you. And the only thing that God wants out of you is to be with you. And that's really scary for some of us because all we know is how to like get things from one another. But God's befriending of us is about being with. This is why at Christmas time we call Jesus Christ Emmanuel. Literally, with us is God. We create chasms, or as the, the flourish in this translation put it, the crevasse. We create these chasms between us based on relationships of four. And we create haves and have-nots to negotiate the chasm. But ultimately, our chasms are created so that we can keep throwing coal on the fiery lie that we don't need each other. We create chasms so that we can keep peddling lies that our salvation, that our healing, that our liberation, that our living a human life isn't intimately and always mutual. God does not create chasms. We do. In fact, God erases chasms. God tears down the dividing walls of hostility and creates a communion in its place. I mean, just wouldn't that be good? I got to believe that's good news for somebody here today. Like, what if you actually just believed that God was no longer trying to get something out of you? How much of your life is just based on you trying to prove to your mama or your daddy or your spouse or yourself or God that you're worth something by what you put out into the world and what you do? Jesus Christ has come to liberate you from that way of living and saying, can you just be just be with me. That's more than enough for God. And yet it's often nowhere near enough for us. This is why so many of us fear. So, I mean, how much of our fears get down to that at the bottom? If this happens, I won't be good for, and then we fill in the blank. That scares the hell out of us. We have a God who comes into this and says, you don't need those chasms. 
you need communion. A communion where we discover that my healing, my salvation, my liberation, my living has always been, is, and always will be intimately bound up in communion with you. I remember when Father Gregory Boyle came to preach at Holy Family. He leads Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, which is the largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world. He is someone who, for me, exemplifies this communion with approach. He says, if you want to know why we stand at the margins, we stand at the margins so that the margins under our feet get erased. If you want to know why we stand with the demonized, we stand with the demonized so that demonizing will stop. We stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. We go to the margins with kinship, communion, as our goal. No kinship, no communion, no peace. No kinship, no justice. No kinship, no equality. We go to the margins and we brace ourselves against those who say that communion or kinship or being with is a waste of time. The place where Jeremiah the prophet said, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, voices of those who sing. I mean, he exemplifies what Mother Teresa said. The problem with the world is that we have forgotten that we belong to each other. That's ultimately at the bottom of this weird little story that Jesus tells. You wanna keep living in a world with the chasms? Or do you wanna transform the chasm into communion? Overcome it now. And in order to do that, you and I are going to have to imagine a new circle, a new kind of communion instead of a chasm a circle of compassion where no one is outside of the circle. Not even Lazarus. Not even the rich man. Not even you. Find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.